enough. As we're about to read, it says that when he gets to the place where he teaches, he sits down. Because in the rabbinic tradition, it's the teacher who sits down and speaks. So when somebody sits down, that's when the teaching begins. And so if you can just imagine Jesus sitting on a lawn chair up there or something like that, we're getting a little closer. The other is that there was more of a flat space at the top there, not maybe a rock outcropping there. So uh, if you get to go here, and we'll show some pictures of it and a little video of it, you'll see that it's actually a flat space on the top of a mountaintop, which would have provided space for many people to be more on eye level with Jesus, but yet have this uh, breathtaking view of the Sea of Galilee behind. So I'd like to actually orient us geographically, since we're talking about taking a journey and maybe next year going on this trip. If we have the next slide, to give you a sense of where we think this took place. And it's kind of hard to see from way in the back, but just if this is what we call the Sea of Galilee, and it's called the sea, but that's generous. It's a lake uh, by all geographical terms, in terms of its acreage and size. It is definitely a lake. But we call it the Sea of Galilee. It sounds a little grander. It's quite big, but it's a lake. You know, if, if Lake Superior is a lake, then this is a pond, okay? So here we have many of the places that were, these are the cities and their names of the time of Jesus. So this is not an Old Testament map. This is a New Testament map. This is a, an area called the Decapolis, the, the ten Greek cities, the Hellenized cities. So a lot of this area has some Jewish people living in it, but also has a lot of, of Gentiles living in it. So it's a challenging area to do ministry. But here at the very top is Capernaum, and um, right under the maybe the letter A in Capernaum is where we think uh, this actually took place. Now, when I, I went to seminary, I went to a seminary in 1994 to about 2000. I squeezed four years of seminary into six years. So that worked really well. But part of that was I went on a trip to Israel with uh, one of the Old Testament professors, Carl Holt, great guy. And uh, everywhere we went, he would say something like, on a scale of one to five, he'd say, this is a five. Meaning, is like five stars in authenticity. Like, this is a real place in the Bible, and we're pretty sure this is the actual place where this thing happened. So you go to the you go to the, the Wailing Wall, the Western Wall, or the steps of the old temple, that's a five. Jesus stood there. You can stand on that spot. That's a five. Then you get into some other things like, this is, this is where Rachel was buried. Well, that's like a two or a three, because it's in the general vicinity, but there's like, somebody has, has built a shrine on that spot. And they're like, it's this spot. Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe. It could be. Chances are it could be, but you get to Bethlehem, and there's a church, and there's a spot right where Jesus was born. That's like a three. He was born in Bethlehem, but it's a, it's a big town. And it doesn't say exactly which cross streets, this little, you know, where the barn was, right? They don't talk about that. So, so this one is like a three or a four. I mean, there's a mountain. There's not a lot of, I mean, there's a mountain, and it was one of those somewhere on this mountain. Anyway, so uh, if you get to go, and let's do the next slide. Let's see. Now, as like I said, there's a church on every spot where something in the Bible happened, like the Catholics or the Eastern Orthodox or somebody, or somebody who's trying to make a little money had put up some structure on every spot. And so this is the church of the Beatitudes or the church of the Sermon on the Mount, and it's near the place where we think that Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. And let's do one more, and I think it's a video, and it's breathtaking. 
It's a little choppy, but there you see kind of a flat plane here where maybe Jesus stood and the, the view of the sea, the sea of Galilee, the Lake of Galilee, uh, the pond is back there in the distance. And it might start over there. Isn't that pretty? It's just beautiful up there. Uh, if you happen to go after the rainy season, there's a lot of wildflowers up there. And so um, there's a lot of beautiful places in the Holy Land. So that's our geographic location of what's happening in what we're about to read right now. And I want to talk about, as an introduction, I want to talk about two things. One is, why do we call them the Beatitudes? The word Beatitude comes from the Latin word Beatitudo, which is the condition of being happy or blessed. And this was a word that was coined by Cicero, so one of the ancient uh, Latin scholars. And um, we're, they're called the Beatitudes because there's this word blessed or happy that begins every line of the Beatitudes. So we have blessed are the poor in spirit, but not all translations have this the, the same way. Some have blessed and others have happy. Have you noticed that? Every now and then again you run across a translation that says happy are the poor in spirit, happy are those who mourn, which is starting to sound a little strange, right? Because are mourning people happy? I have not experienced them this way. But this is the paradox that Jesus is going to invite us into on in the Beatitudes and actually in the Sermon on the Mount itself. The word behind this blessed or happy is the Greek word makarios. And what it really means is, is this overwhelmingly and distinctive religious joy which comes to a person because they have a share in salvation in the kingdom of God. So it's both a blessedness in the sense that there's this blessing awaiting for you. There's also this deep-seated joy and even happiness, potentially happiness, about your state. Another, another interpreter puts it like this. It's a deep inner joy of those who have long awaited the salvation promised by God and who now begin, but not completely, begin to experience its fulfillment. And so you could, you could translate it as happy, you could translate it as blessed, you could translate it as joyful, although joy has its own special word that some, the interpreters generally would use joy because that would kind of muddy the waters. But there's this sense of intense satisfaction, peace, joy, and happiness and blessedness that is marked by this word that Jesus uses. So that's the first thing. What does that word mean when we read it? So uh, it helps us to kind of understand that when we go through the, the Beatitudes themselves. The second is I want to draw our attention to this idea that this is the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's not a really tall mountain, but yet it's a mountain. And if you look in the Bible, you'll find that a lot of really amazing things happen on mountaintops, okay? I cannot list them all. That would take a long time. But I want to bring three to your attention. In chapter 4 of Matthew, just before this chapter, Jesus is taken up onto a high mountain by the devil and tempted. And it's a test. A, a testing takes place on the mountaintop, and Jesus withstands the test. In chapter 17 of Matthew, it's called the Mount of the Transfiguration, and that's a place where Jesus has this uh, meeting with people from the past, Moses and Elijah, and God says, this is my son, listen to him, there's through this transfiguration, Jesus is transfigured in front of them, he starts to glow white, and so mountaintops are places where these really intense things happen. Uh, you could think of Mount Sinai, where the law is given to Moses, you could think of Mount Ararat, where the 
ark came to rest after the flood, and God inaugurated a new covenant with his people. Think of Mount Carmel, where Elijah had a contest with the prophets of Baal, and God decisively set that evil on notice that day, that he was not to be uh, become uh, out of favor of people becoming all idolatrous. And finally, in chapter 28 of Matthew, we have the Mount of the Resurrection appearance, where Jesus appears to the disciples on the mountaintop and gives them the Great Commission. And so a lot of really important things happen on mountains, and, and today we have the, uh, the Mount, where the Sermon on the Mount takes place. So, Something, when, whenever people go up to a mountain in the Bible, pay attention. Something big is going to happen there. So that's the introduction. Let's go to our reading now. Our reading is Matthew 5, 1 through 12. When I read Blessed, we have the NIV in the, in the Pew Bibles. That's on page 958. When I read Blessed, I invite you to a place where you could hear the word happy or joyful or uh, deeply satisfied in the salvation that God gives us. So let's read Matthew 5. Now when he, that's Jesus, when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We ask that you would add your blessing to it. In Jesus' name, amen. What I'd like us to do is, we're going to go through part of the Beatitudes. We can't, we don't have time to do all of them, but I'm going to go through them more or less verse by verse and draw out some things that I think are going to be really important for us. And then at the end, try to bring that together with something that we can use in this week coming up in front of us. What is Jesus really about here? What is happening here on this mountain as he's saying these things? So first off, I invite you to look at, at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 5. And as, as we said, it says he climbed the mountain. Jesus climbed the mountain. His disciples came after him. Seems like a lot of other people came too. And when you climb a mountain in the Bible, something special is going to happen. And it says that he did sit down in the rabbinic style so that he could begin to preach and speak. And it says in the NIV, it says that he began to teach them. Literally, if you look at the text, it says he opened his mouth to teach. So this sense that... It's an idiom, it's a, an idiom in the, old, in the New Testament that when somebody opens their mouth to teach, it's not just like, oh, he, he taught them how to tie their shoelaces, something mundane like that. When you open your mouth to teach, 
you're about to say something pretty momentous. You're about to, so there's an intensification of, this is a really big deal, okay? What's happening next is a really big deal. Not only are they on a mountain, but Jesus prefaces it with sort of a lot of personal preparation, and, and there's some gravity to what's happening here on top of the mountaintop. And as we know, we look at the Sermon on the Mount, chapter, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, this is huge for us as Christians. The Sermon on the Mount, and we can't talk about the whole Sermon on the Mount today. We might be able to in, in months to come, but there's a lot in there. There's a lot in there. There's a lot of ethical teaching in there. There's a lot of re-assertion um, of the law, intensification of the law, which drives us to need God even more. Uh, there's a whole lot in there about life together. And so this is a really important thing, and, but he begins it with the Beatitudes. He begins it with these sayings of blessedness or happiness should come to these people who it seems actually really need it. So he began, to, he began to teach. He opened his mouth. He began to teach. And if you look at verse 3, he says this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, I'll be honest with you. I've never understood that. And until I started doing some more work, I never understood what this meant. You're all kind of like scratching my Am I poor in spirit? Like, is there a spiritual bank account and my number is really low? You know what I mean? Actually, that's kind of close, Okay. Uh, are some people rich in the spirit or some people are poor in the spirit? Not exactly. What this means is that the people who are poor in spirit are not less spiritual. Okay, don't hear it that way. People who are poor in spirit are painfully dependent on God. Does that make sense? They, they realize that what they have inside of them is not enough. This should be the true posture of all Christians, actually. All Christians, we should, we should say of ourselves that we are poor in spirit. Because we've assessed our own spirit, and we said, I find myself wanting, and I find myself lacking. And only God can fill up in me what is truly required. And so I come to God with my paucity of spirit, so that I don't be it's a position of humility. It's a position of reality. And so the prideful don't know how to experience poorness, poverty of spirit. It doesn't mean they're rich in the spirit. It just means that they haven't engaged God in this way. They haven't actually realized how much they need God. Now, here's the great news. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who are painfully aware of how much they need God because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Does that sound good? Great. This sounds pretty good to me. The kingdom of heaven. And notice that this is in the present tense. A lot of these other things are more future tense, but this one is the here and now. If you are poor in spirit, you are already in and have already received the kingdom of heaven. I've spoken about this before. It's, it's worth repeating. I don't have too much time this morning to talk about it, but there's this idea that the kingdom of heaven is already here now. It's yet to come in some fullness that we haven't seen yet, but the kingdom of heaven is here right now. One way you could say the kingdom is not, it's not a geographical kingdom, but it does kind of follow us around. And the kingdom of heaven is in those places where the gospel is proclaimed rightly and the, 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 the sacraments are administered truly, and that's kind of a Lutheran way of thinking about things, but the covenant could think of it that way too. So the kingdom of heaven is all around us, and the kingdom of heaven is belonging to those who are acutely aware 
of their need for God and are asking God to fill them up. That's where the kingdom is. That's powerful. And that makes sense of this thing because otherwise this thing doesn't make sense. Right? How could the spiritually impoverished people, if, if being poor in the spirit meant that you had no spiritual life at all, right? Or if it meant that you were alienated from God, how could that person inherit the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven? They can't. It's the person who acutely and desperately needs God. That's the first step. They are already in the kingdom of God. It's an accomplished fact already. So that's great news. And so people are listening to this, and they're already, I want you to imagine that you're up on that beautiful hillside listening to this going, ah, the path into the kingdom of heaven is to submit myself to God and to admit to God that I don't have enough in myself. I, I'm starting to get this. They're, they're, but yet, there's some paradoxes ahead of us that are going to cause some people to, to kind of scratch their heads, which is great. That's how we need to teach it. Let's look at verse 4. Blessed are those, or happy are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And this one's hard. This one doesn't quite make sense, does it? Uh, I haven't seen a lot. Well, actually, I've seen laughter at funerals because that's actually an important sort of thing that happens at funerals. Is sometimes there's some levity. We, there's, we need to express these emotions. But in general speaking, especially family members, they're not happy be in mourning. They don't feel particularly blessed to be mourning. But who is mourning? Who is mourning in this case where Jesus is talking about? It could be grief from loss, like losing a family member or losing some other thing, and grief comes from loss. But there's also godly grief. There's grief over our own lack of spirit. There's grief over our own spiritual poverty. There's grief over our own conduct, which is counter to what God desires and demands of us. And that godly grief is, is something that we would say is a good thing. That means that our, that our conscience is at work. It means that we're receptive to God's movement in the world. And so Jesus says to them, either whether you're mourning for some loss or you're mourning because of your own spiritual state, which is lacking, someday, now this is future tense, you will be comforted. Not present tense. This is important. That's why I'm drawing it, uh, your attention to these tenses. The very first one is you're already in the kingdom of heaven. That's an accomplished thing. But when you're mourning, those who mourn, they will someday be comforted. And we can kind of think about what that day will be. Well, let's move on. Verse 5. Blessed are the meek. This is so counterintuitive. A lot of these things are starting to get a little weird here, right? Blessed are the meek. Only in the Bible, only in the inverted, upside-down kingdom of God are the meek people happy. All the other meek people I know are squished. Okay, they're not happy people. The meek, the humble, the gentle, uh, they get run over. They get run down. I mean, ugh. And uh, I'm not just talking about the roadway. I'm just talking about life. You know, the aggressive person is always going to bowl over the meek and the gentle person. And so Jesus is saying, the gentle, the meek, those who don't push for their own way in life, the non-aggressive people, uh, they will someday inherit the earth. Ooh, this is great. This could also be, though, people who have been humbled. These are people who have, have submitted themselves to God and have given up 
trying to control the world and, and have given up aggression and have now let God work and flow through them. And, and Jesus is saying, those people will someday inherit the earth, which maybe, depends on what you think of the future of the earth, could actually be heaven itself. We talk about going to heaven and we think it's like someplace in space or some other dimension or some other, you know what I mean? Like where is heaven? It's like just in the clouds with the angels strumming. Maybe heaven is on earth. We've talked about this. And, and so you get to think about where would you like to live in heaven? Would you like to live in, you know, the Redwood Forest maybe? Or I would, I would kind of like to live in the Sonoran Desert because that's where I grew up and it's beautiful. It's interesting, you know? Where in heaven on earth would you like to live? Well, think about it. So, in other words, what we're saying here is blessed are the meek for they shall go to heaven, potentially, right? They're the ones that are, and, but we also believe that the kingdom of heaven is for all those who are going to heaven too. So there's a lot going on here. Jesus is, is turning a lot of things upside down. He's elevating people who are poor in spirit, people who are mourning, people who are meek, gentle, and humble. And all these great things will come to them. Verse 6, and that's about as far as we're going to get this morning uh, with analyzing this. But it says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now notice the two sort of verbs there. Not just hunger for righteousness, or not just thirst for righteousness, but hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Again, an intensification of this desire. The desire isn't just a simple desire. The desire, desire is an all-consuming desire. My desire, my hunger, and my thirst is for righteousness. And they will be filled, it says. They will be satisfied for what they want. Now, I want to draw your attention to this word righteousness. Because in the New Testament, the word for righteousness and the word for justification are the same word. And they're closely related to the word for justice. This idea that God will vindicate or that people will be vindicated from things that have gone wrong. And so it could mean that Jesus is also saying that if you hunger and thirst and you have a deep need and a deep longing for justice in this world, that deep need will be filled one day. And this is true because God, we believe, will bring both justice and mercy when the time comes. And, and yet he does all the time anyways. All these things are kind of happening now and they're going to happen in the future. And there's more. So there's more conventional things going on uh, that are, are a little less paradoxical. Blessed are the merciful, they'll receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers, which I love. Uh, blessed are you when they are, blessed are the persecuted, and blessed are you particularly when people insult you. And that word for insult is the same word that was used to describe the insults that Jesus received when he was on the cross. It's the same concept. So when, when you experience hardship in the way that Jesus did on the cross, blessed and happy are you when those things happen. I haven't found that to be particularly blessed or happy to receive the persecution and the lies and the insults from this world. And so Jesus is up to something. Jesus is up to something, and that's what I want to get at next. So, to maybe address that, I want to say, what, what, would, what would have happened if Jesus had said more conventional things like, happy are 
the rich. Happy are the successful. Happy are the beautiful. Hmm? Right? And the people would have said, we came all the way up here for that? I know that. Everybody knows that. It's clear that it's clear the rich are happy. It's clear the beautiful are happy. It's clear the successful are happy. You haven't taught us anything new. Let's see if we can get down the mountain in time for dinner and do something else today with our time. I don't know why we followed this guy all the way up here. Jesus doesn't talk like that, though. He doesn't say obvious things. Jesus talks in parables and he talks in paradoxes. And these are paradoxes. The ways he's talking now. Happy are those who mourn. That's a paradox. Happy are the poor in spirit. That's a paradox. Happy are the meek. meek. To me, actually, that's the biggest paradox. Right there. Happy are the meek and the humble. That's some paradox. And so he's starting, he wants people to actually go home that night and, and still be scratching a few hairs on their head going, what was he about? What was that about? That's the kind of teaching that sticks with you. It's the kind of teaching that makes the trip up and down the mountain really worth it. Because um, how really, how can people be happy if they're poor in spirit? Or longing for justice but not seeing it yet? Or how, how happy can they be? And actually, one of the persons I think could be the least happy in this world is to be a peacemaker. Because I haven't seen peace. I haven't seen peace come from any of these peacemakers that go out into the world and try to broker treaties between nations. That's like the worst job in the world, because here it is. You go make these people have peace with each other. And by and this is an impossible job, and we ask you to do it. And by the way, when, when it fails, we're not going to blame them, we're going to blame you. I don't want that job. How could that job be a happy job? How could that job be one that's blessed? And how could that be a job that God would ever ask us to do so that if we do it, we should be called the sons and daughters of God? If we are the peacemakers. And yet, we are called to it. Interesting. So the paradox is working on me, as you can tell, because there's a lot of things in here that I don't want to do. There's a lot of things. I don't want to be a peacemaker. It's an impossible job. I don't want to be me. That's contrary to my nature. I don't want to mourn. I don't want to be poor in spirit. I want to fill up in myself the things that make me self-sufficient. I want to control things, not to have God be in control of my life. So the paradox is there. And there's a paradox of time going on, too. Jesus is on top of a mountain, and it's, it's a place where, where kind of time overlaps paradoxically. Remember on the Mount of the Transfiguration, you have Moses and Elijah and Jesus all occupying the same space. Even though they're really separated by hundreds of years, God can do these things, we can't do these things. And even in, this, in the same way inside this sermon on the Mount, the beginning, the Beatitudes, there's really like two time zones going on. There's the present time, the time when I'm talking to you about now, and in the present tense, we're experiencing all these things, our poverty of spirit and our mourning, and our lack, and our grief, and our desire for justice. But the reward that we're waiting for isn't until someday. It's way in the future. The only thing that's here right now is the kingdom of heaven, and it belongs to those who are poor in spirit. That's here now, but not in all its fullness. It's already, but not quite yet. All these other things are future promises that we have to wait for. And so I want you to imagine the present that Jesus is in with his disciples right in that moment and the present that you're in right now. 
And there's the future when all these rewards will come for the difficulties that are in this life. And Jesus is asking you to live with him and journey with him in this in-between time. This is your life. The life between when he calls you and the life between when he calls you home. There's this journey you're on with him where all these things that are promised have not yet really come about. It's a paradox because you're waiting for it, but it's not here yet. And it's the most creative and it's the most tense and it's the most difficult and it's the most wonderful time. Because it's the life that God has called you into. So this is our journey. Other things are going to happen in the future. You're going to inherit the earth someday, but not today. Right now, the real estate agents seem to have all of it, right? And, and the countries have it, and the nations have it. You're not going to get justice today. That's going to have to wait until God comes back for all sorts of things. And may he come soon. May he come soon. But not yet. It's not here yet. If you want justice, you're going to have to wait. You're going to have to wait a while. If you want comfort, you can get some now, but you're going to have to wait a while for the rest, for the ultimate comfort, the ultimate peace that comes only from God. You're going to have to wait. So what is Jesus about? I think Jesus is about asking us to join him on a journey when he tells us to be out of here. He's saying, here's where we are now. And here's a description of what our lives look like. And here's the future. And I want you to come with me from here to here. And go with me all the way, every step of the journey. And it starts by admitting that we're spiritually poor. Starts by admitting that what we have inside of us is not enough, but we need to be filled by God. And the rest seems to be in the future, along the way, at some end of the journey. And so we're, we're beginning today, and we're going to go through hunger and longing and mourning and trials and hardship. And actually, as Jesus goes from here, and this is more or less the beginning of his ministry. It starts a few chapters before this, but this is more or less the beginning of his ministry. He's calling his disciples. He's getting ready to get on the road. In the rest of his journey with his disciples, he's going to go and teach. He's going to heal. He's going to free people from darkness. He's going to confront earthly powers and authorities. He's going to be crucified. And finally, he's going to be raised again. And the future reward is there for all of us, but it's for him as well. And what's interesting is that each of these episodes that I just talked about, they all take place in the land, and they are places that you can go and visit. It's like a little infomercial right now. Come on a trip next year. You can go to the places where he healed. You can go to the places where he teaches. You can go to the places where he confronted the earthly authorities and powers with God's power and God's authority. And I want to go there with you. I want to go on this trip. But we, even if you can't go physically, you can go there in the Word. You, and you're going to go there in the Word each month as we go forward in this sermon series. But we start with the attitudes. It starts with the spiritual paradox. That what you are experiencing now doesn't feel blessed, but God calls it blessed because it's the beginning. And there's a future great reward that's waiting for those who have experienced these things. I'm going to read the last part of this. Uh, verse 11. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, much in the same way that they did to Jesus when he was hanging on the cross. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. 
Grace is the reward of heaven. Think about being on this mountain. Maybe we can show it. Can we show the video one more time, Lynn? We'll come up in a second. And actually, this week I'm going to send these pictures home to you. And I'm going to send you this video. It's not as choppy when you watch it on your computer. But it's beautiful. And imagine being here and listening to Jesus invite you on this journey that starts with paradox. Just imagine this. And meditate on the Beatitudes. Let them sort of beckon you into the journey. Uh, Jesus is talking about himself in these words. All these things are, that he's talking about have been, are going to happen to him and have happened. And I'm going to invite you to just look at that um, video and picture as it cycles. And listen to the Beatitudes. And I don't often do this, but I'm going to read from the message. Because he puts a good twist on it. Uh, Eugene Peterson puts a good twist on, on the Beatitudes. So I'm going to read the Beatitudes from the message, and that will be the end. He writes this, You're blessed or happy when you're at the end of your rope. That's the poor in spirit. With less of you, there is more of God and his rule. You're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. You're blessed when you're content with just who you are. No more, no less. That's the moment you find yourselves proud owners of everything that can't be bought. You're blessed when you've worked up a good appetite for He's food and drink and the best meal you'll ever eat. You're blessed when you care. At the moment of being careful, you find yourselves cared for. You're blessed when you get inside when you get your inside world, your mind and heart put right. Then you can see God in the outside world. You're blessed when you can show people how to cooperate instead of compete or fight. That's when you discover who you really are in God's family. You're blessed when your commitment to God provokes persecution. The persecution drives you even deeper into God's family. Not only that, count yourselves blessed every time people put you down or throw you out or speak lies about you to, dis to discredit me. What it means is that the truth is too close for comfort and they are uncomfortable. You can be glad when that happens. Give a cheer even for though they don't like it, I do. And all heaven applauds. And know that you are in good company. My prophets and witnesses is often always gotten into this kind of trouble. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the beginning of this journey. Thank you for the word from Jesus of blessedness. Thank you for the invitation into this paradox. Father, may we be faithful to answer Jesus' call and go on this journey.